Hi, I'm Laura Boswell. And I'm Peter Keegan. And as always, we have the talented Mr B on sound. Welcome to our weekly episode of Ask an Artist, the podcast where we help you make the leap and become a working artist. Every week we explore a different topic from the deeply practical to the enjoyably creative, with plenty of down-to-earth advice to put you onto the road for making a living from your art. Now today we have our ever popular listeners questions. That's right, that's when you take control of that episode and put Laura and me on the spot and have us answer some of your artistic quandaries. And in this episode we have a couple of very practical questions along with a theosophical quandary. But to get us started, Laura, we've got one that's very specifically to you, but I think it relates all well to, uh, to me and also the way that we start work. So this is from Emma and it reads, when you get a paper that you haven't used before, is there any process or testing that you do to see how they work and what do you look for? I ask because I've been trying out different papers since I started printing a couple of years ago. I don't always know if the results I get when I print on the new paper are foibles of the paper or me, i.e. did I ink that badly or was that the paper? So do you test a paper in any way? For example, do you have a particular image you will print in a particular ink or do you just print something on it and see what happens? So we've got sort of a question that's saying, do you experiment and guess and hope for the best (laughs) or is there a little bit of method behind the madness? Oh, now that is a really interesting question. And I guess there are two ways in which I approach paper. One is when I'm selecting a paper that I'm intending to use kind of as a stock paper. So a paper that I haven't chosen for a particular project. It's a paper I'm looking for for daily use. Now, in an absolutely ideal world, that wouldn't happen very often. I would just have stock paper that was easily readily available mm-hmm. and I could get hold of when I wanted and I'd just work with that. And would the, that paper be sold and exhibited and, and, and framed and so on? Or is that purely playtime experimental paper? No, no. A stock paper is the paper that I would do my would be my go-to paper for making prints. So if I'm looking for a go-to paper then what I tend to do is I will get sample papers. So I will try and to always talk to a specialist supplier, so a good printmaking shop or a good paper supplier. And it really pays to build up a relationship with your suppliers. And I'm Mm. sure that's the case for you too, Peter, because it means that you can go to them and you can ask, you can describe what you do and ask for a set of sample papers that might fulfill that. So when my sample papers arrive and I've got I've got a selection, then I will do some serious testing. So I will use I've got some multi-block linos so that I I can do color tests with various colored inks and I can I can print the same picture on the different bits of paper. So I'll actually go through all the paper and I will print up on them. And what I'm looking for is not just how do they take the ink and do they look lovely and all that kind of thing, but I'm looking for have they got any foibles that I will have to take care of if I choose to use them. Like, Mm. for example, uh, I use Fabriano Rosaspina a lot. Now, it's a beautiful paper, but it can crack. It It can crease and um, have kinks in it if you're not careful with it. Right. Now I'm prepared to work with that, but in my testing I discovered that, and so I factor that potential problem into how I handle the paper. Mm. So I'm looking out for things like do when I peg it up to dry, does it make a mark on the paper? Do I mm. need to take that into account when I'm working with it? So I'll put the paper through lots of tests and printing the same image, the same inks on each 
of my range of paper and then I'll whittle it down. I've got this image of you testing in sort of some sort of scientific white I've coat got some and white goggles. Art. Do you know the lovely Michael Crane from Cranfield Colours who we interviewed? Yes. He gave me a white coat. <gasps> I hope I've you got, wear that. I've got a special white coat from Cranfield <laughs> Colours with the, with the logo on the pocket, and I wear that when I'm testing always. So that's that's one way of doing it. The other time is when I have a particular paper for a particular project. So I'm doing a project for this autumn where I have a phenomenally expensive but very, very beautiful handmade washi paper that's just arrived from Japan. And what I'm doing in that instance is I'm going to sacrifice a sheet of that. And what I'm looking for is how, what processes will do justice to that paper. Mm. So we're going the other way around this time and I will run a whole series of tests. I'll cut that piece of paper up into sheets and I'll run a whole series of tests so I know which ways of inking, which processes do justice to those particular how long does this testing take? I mean, it sounds quite vigorous and intensive. Oh, it will certainly take me, I don't know. If I was testing for stock paper, I would, uh, you know, a good day, day and a half of wow. tests, things like that. But on a, with a stock paper or with this particular paper, it's it's time well spent mm. because you do not want to mess up later on. Yeah. But I imagine in, in, in your practice that you also have things that you have to test thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, if we specifically, off. if we keep it to ground, the surface in which I paint on is yes. as, 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 you know, as a paint on. I work in oils and, and sometimes acrylic and even I dabble in watercolour occasionally. Don't tell anyone, but I do mm. occasionally. But when uh, working in, in sort of opaque paint like oil mm. and acrylic, you know, we tend to go to canvas, but there are so many canvases out there. You know, you mm. free buy from all the different manufacturers and, you know, we all know a canvas is this, you know, piece of fabric stretched over some wood. It's painted white, but everyone feels slightly differently and it tends to be the feeling of it, of how absorbent mm. it is. So does the paint slip and slide beautifully so you can get those lovely kind of confident bravura brush strokes or is it very thick and coarse an open weave we call it and does it sort of suck in the oil so you can't move it around as much so it's much better for kind of sculpting so I will kind of try and test those um, and then there's a huge group of painters which I also do which is I make my own grounds and surface so I mm. cut up boards to specific sizes and then I prime and protect them and it's really important for two reasons. That Number one, you have to make sure that this piece of wood, whether it's MDF, which is quite smooth, or you've got plywood, which is mm. slightly got more of the grain in it. Do I want the grainness or do I want the smooth? And then the, the primer that I put on, it does two things. Of course, it gives a surface that the paint adheres to, and that has a quality in its own mm. right. But I need the primer to protect mm. the wood because I don't want that wood to sort of start rotting away in, in decades or centuries to come. Mm. And all that takes quite a long time. And, and myself and I know lots of other painters sometimes put two or three days aside just to making up the correct canvases mm. or the correct boards or panels to work from. Mm. But once they've found what works for them and they've got a nice set to work from, then they can sort of go and paint without any kind of obstacles or irritating problems sort of getting in the way. They've kind of accounted it very early on. So I think the sort of takeaway from what we do is that, yes, you it takes time to test it, mm. but it's worth it because then you can establish what works for you yeah. and then you've got a go-to yeah. that you, you can respond to each don't, time. Don't see it as wasted time. No, you know, no. It's not wasted time. You see, the, the more more testing, and testing is kind of a grand word. It can just be experimenting and playing. Don't sort of buy a new material that you've <laughs> never worked on before and think this is going to be my yeah. Magnus painting. Do some preparatory work first. Absolutely. So now we are going to move from the very practical into the philosophical. 
So oh, I'm going to read you the question. My, I'm my going to brain throw ready this, for this one. Right, okay. <laughs> I'm going to Good throw this right at you, Peter. So Maria wants to know, have you ever had doubts about your work? Do you ever think you're good enough? Ooh. That's quite deep, isn't it? That is I think that needs deep. a deep answer, doesn't it? Um, yeah. do I, have I ever had any doubts about my work? Yes. Do you think that I'm good enough? No. There you go. <laughs> is that as deep That's as you are? That's very harsh. Very deep. Should we, we move on? No. I, um, so this is, and this is all about kind of self, self-confidence and self-awareness. I mean, I think... Of course, I doubt myself as an artist. I think I have, I know what I'd like to achieve. I know where I wish to go. I have an idea in what my future will hopefully look like. But I do sort of have doubts that I will kind of, you know, get there. I, I am ambitious and I want and confident that I will get there through hard work and perseverance and dedication to the craft of painting. But of course, I do sometimes think, oh, am I not cut out for this? Or am I not quite good enough compared to this artist? And this artist is, you know, doing even better than me. And they're younger than me. And they're better looking than me. And their colours are <laughs> colours are nicer. And their paintings are selling for far more money. And of course, if we all thought like that, I don't think any of us would do anything. No. Because of course, that's sort of the problem, isn't it? That that there is, I think there's always, I always think that there's always going to be someone better than you out there. And I kind of, when I kind of, I realise that and I'm okay with that. I kind of just relax and just mm. go my own way and my direction as opposed to constantly comparing myself mm. uh, to others, which I think can be the kind of the, the danger in art. Um, it's much more, the more, the more I'm working as, as a professional artist, the more I realise that my fellow peers and contemporaries, that we're not in competition with each other, quite opposite. We're very supportive and encouraging of each other. And a lot of artists are very open in sharing what they do and how they do it, which is much more, you know, inclusive as opposed to exclusive. So, you know, of course, I'm not good enough yet. There's always room for improvement and I'm chipping my away to get that little bit better. How do you find that? Do you, do you have doubts about your own output. Well, I think I think it's jolly good to have doubts about your work. If you're sitting there magnificently complacent <laughs> in your perfection, then you know how are you going to progress? I think it's the questioning and the constant moving forward because you look at a piece of work and think, right, I would do this differently. I think I can progress by doing X and Y and Z. Mm-hmm. So yes, I I think you do always have doubts about your work and move, move on. And do I ever think I'm good enough? I don't really think a lot about being good enough in the sense. I let's take social media for a, an example, mm. because I think people spend a lot of. Oh, I'm not good enough to show my work on social yeah. media. I'm not good enough to this, that, and the other. I always assume that if I'm not good enough for someone, they'll move on and look at something else. Mm. So I'd leave it up to the viewer to decide if I'm good enough or not. From that point of view, I always think that I'm on a journey and I'm getting better by degrees and everything's learning and everything's progressing. So in some senses, I will never be good enough because there will always be a way in which I can Mm. keep moving forward. But I'm plenty good enough to help out others with what I know already. I'm plenty good enough to be able to be a part of the art scene and to make work and to make my clients happy who buy my work. Mm. So from that point of view, I don't worry too much about that. Mm. But you're absolutely right. There's always... Other artists, I think, you know, it doesn't take us very long to look at 
images of other people's work and think, oh, I love the way they do whatever, this, that, mm. and the other. But the thing to remember is that every time you do that, chances are someone's looking at your work and thinking, oh, I love the way he does faces or I love the way he does those skin tones. I wish I could do that. Mm. And the trouble is there's never that communication. Mm. And just occasionally you will stumble across, you'll overhear something or somebody will say something to you. And suddenly you get that image of yourself as the desirable. You'll suddenly hear yeah. over here, oh, that's a Peter Keegan. Mm. I love the way he does that. I'm mm. so jealous of that. Mm. And then you realise that actually everything's on different levels. Yeah. Everybody's together in this. Mm. So I think it's an interesting question, but it's certainly not one to lose sleep about. No, I've spoken to lots of artists who are, have got very long standing. Uh, careers mm. they're at the top of their game they've got letters after their name mm. uh, they're members of royal societies here there and everywhere mm. their paintings go for thousands sometimes tens of thousands of pounds and they still don't feel good enough they're mm. still sort of you know they're not quite there yet and of course that's the drive that gets them up in the morning you know I've got to get up tomorrow morning I've got to try and crack that thing that I'm still not quite getting right and I think that if you do tick all those boxes and suddenly you're you're perfect I think you'll get bored and you'll want to move on to the next challenge and the next something else that keeps you motivated and keeps you going so yes I don't think that this is something to lose sleep about and I can end actually on a great quote from Robert Hughes who said the greater the artist the greater the doubt perfect confidence is granted to the less talented as a consolation prize (laughs) I like that (laughs) (laughs) it's good isn't it and on that note I think it's time that we splash some colour into this podcast so Peter I hear you've been enjoying the fresh air and painting outside well I have that's right because here in the UK we're basking in beautiful summer sunshine Well, actually not today. It's grey outside, but usually it's quite nice and sunny in the summer. And like hundreds of other artists around the world, we just can't wait to get our easels, paints and brushes outside into the big wide world and have a go at some plein air painting. That's painting live from Mother Nature herself. And there really is nothing better than painting outside with the sun on your back and that sun illuminating the lush green landscape in front of you. So which green, I hear you say, (laughs) should you turn to to describe all those bright, zingy, zesty summery greens well the green i'm thoroughly enjoying playing with at the moment is michael harding's bright green lake and what a green it is it's a it's a special green that michael has formulated by combining organic pigments to fill the gap that was previously occupied by lead chromate green and that's been long discontinued by manufacturers partly because its tendency to darken over time and worse, the way it reacts with other paints. Now, what makes Michael Harding's bright green lake so special is both its permanence and its sheer power. It's a big colour. It's a big green. It's bright. It's loud. It's this fruity green that's almost fluorescent and it really sings on the canvas, especially when used as a transparent glaze or underpainting. Now, I have to admit, I've even been sneaking some of this fabulous green into some of my portrait paintings Mm. too, as it mixes so well into skin tones and complements warm skin colours beautifully. So it's fun. It's a wallop of a green to have on the palette and especially good for those artists who are not afraid of a big, bold gem of a colour. Wow. So if you'd like to be bowled over by this green and find out about Michael Harding's handmade paints, the fantastic colour range and a wealth of useful information about working with the paints, mediums and more, visit his website at michaelharding.co.uk. 
And now we've had our break. Let's go back to the questions. And this is one that I am going to read to you, Peter, and it comes from Tony. Is it worth self-publishing a book of your own work? If you have done this, how did you sell it? Any tips for producing and publishing? Much appreciated. Wow. Big question. Big question. So have um, is it worth self-publishing a book. So I have done this. I did mm-hmm. self-publish a book. So at the moment, it's not in stock anymore because I wanted to sort of do it as a little kind of dry run. So um, through teaching, of course, you know, as you know, Laura, I do you know quite a bit of teaching, both in person and online. Quite a lot of students very quickly said, can you gather a lot of this information and put it into some sort sure. of book? Um, and at the time, I was just doing handouts for them. I thought, well, actually, if I collect all this into sort of a, a book, um, then I've got something that I can hand out. But then, of course, I've got, mm. I can sell to others that don't necessarily want to attend the course. So I looked into different ways of doing it. And I could either go down the publishing, the official publishing point of view or the self-publishing. And because this was an experimentation and it was quite small scale, I went down that self-publishing side. So I had a lot of this content already written. I, I wrote a few extra bits, compiled it all together. Um it was quite expensive. That's the thing about self-publishing. It can be quite expensive. Um, of course, the more copies you print, you know, there's difference from printing 100 copies than, you know, 1,000 copies. So you have to be aware of, of, of stocking and where you're going to store them. So uh, it's a great difference of storing 100 copies compared to 1,000 copies. So when I self-published, I just got 100 printed because that's all I was able uh, to uh, stock. But also I was aware of who was I selling this to? And I think this is the kind of the crux of the question. Mm. Are you looking for this to go online to sell to everyone around the world or do you have a specific target audience that you're selling to which was sort of my uh, strand so it took a lot of time and I know you've written a couple mm. of books you're in the process mm. of writing one and you can't just knock a book up overnight no, I think can't. particularly one with good quality that has real depth with great images it does take a heck of a long time to write so I'd be conscious and aware of that and to be aware of who is your market who are you selling this to is it to friends and family and, and students and acquaintances, the self-publishing route is certainly, I think, a very good one for you. But if you're looking to get a much more of a national, even global market, and you really have something to offer, then maybe approaching a publisher and talking to them about your idea would be a better way of doing it. Certainly, if you haven't got the upfront funds to get everything printed yourself. Um, but I think, Peter, you also, we're talking about a book that that you wrote specifically about how to make art, but you have recently produced a rather lovely little catalogue of your paintings as well. And that's another um, way of promoting yourself and self-publishing is Mm. to actually, and it's something that I've thought about and have never got around to, but you have, Mm. where you publish a, a book of your paintings yeah. or your artwork. It's sort of what I call a coffee table book, essentially. Yeah, exactly. It's just there's, so a, there's a, a very beautiful thing to look a at. brief introduction and then a catalogue full of all of the pictures in. And of course it's I sort of mainly do those. They're partly it's a, it's a sales, it's a product. I mm. want people to have those and go, oh I'd like to buy that picture. Or it plants the seed of an idea in their head that then maybe one day in the future that they will come and, and invest. Partly I give those out as a marketing strategy. So I'll hand them out to my buyers and collectors for free in, in the hope that they will a buyer work back but then I keep some as a reserve and then I will sell those as a stock and I have them available on my website that you can buy those so they are quite useful as um, people sometimes who can't afford the original painting are quite happy to have a copy in a book tell me how you go about planning something like that how do you work out 
do you do you sort of use it as a, a complete marketing expense and then any you sell as a bonus or do you have a sales plan as well? How does that break down when you're organising it? I see it very much as a marketing mm. strategy. It is, a, it is an aim to sort of create more sales and more interest in the work. It's mm. If it pays for itself, then fantastic through additional sales. But I try not to see it as a profit sort of making enterprise. That's really, really wise. I mean, I've always thought that if I did something like that, it would be basically an advertising expense. I might sell it, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't rely on sales to fund it. I think if you're going to produce a catalogue, it's worthwhile also investing in doing it properly, doing doing it quality. I mean, I've had a look at yours and it's it's a beautiful thing in itself and that's going to appeal to people. There's no point producing it on the cheap mm-hmm. because people won't want it. No. No. So I think, you know, if you're going to go down this route, Tony, you have to think, is it something practical where I'm selling my skills? In which case you still have to make it, to, to make it available in a way that's going to encourage people to buy. Or is it a visual delight showcasing my work, in which case I would put aside the budget as an advertising budget. Mm. And then anything, any of those that you can sell, Mm. it's a bonus. But if you teach, then that kind of thing goes very well at classes. People like to pick up a memento and take it home and say, you know, if you price it right Mm. and it's not, hideously expensive it's like you know if you're if you're if you're doing art fairs art shows exhibitions if you're sort of out there meeting the public having a a 10 pound 15 pound 20 pound catalog or book is a much easier takeaway Mm. than a 200 500 1000 pound uh painting or print so you're sort of we've talked about this for you offering different price points different Mm. products for allowing more people and we, I think we both had this experience where someone has wanted to take an original piece home, mm. but they're just not at that stage where they can afford to do that. But they've taken a greetings card yeah. with our picture on or, or a book. Yeah. And then it sat on their, pinned to their fridge yeah. or on the pin board or on their coffee table. And then years later, lo and behold, we get a phone call or an email from that customer very early on. And now they are at a stage where they are ready to, to purchase an original painting. So you have to kind of see it as that sort of, it's a, sort of a sales funnel. If you like start off small and one day you know it could grow well absolutely i think the other case in point is when you at art fairs you often get one half of a couple come around and it's a lovely thing to be able to hand them the book and say why don't you take that home and show it to your partner and see Mm -hmm. what they think Mm -hmm. because it keeps them engaged and they take home something of good quality to show to the partner. It's going to give them confidence in you as an artist. So yeah. it can be a very useful thing in that instance. Certainly when I was doing a uh, my last residency in Tokyo, mm-hmm. a couple of the other artists that I was with, they brought their books with them. Mm-hmm. And that was the perfect gift when yes. they met, yeah. met people in Japan. So, you know, there are really good instances when that can be a, a, a useful tool. I also find as well that when, if you were thinking about approaching a gallery... Oh, yes, of course. You know, if you sort of yeah. talking to them about what's the uh, what's the way that they'd like to be approached. Mm. If you happen to have a catalogue archive of your work and you could say, well, would you like a copy of this catalogue complimentary? I mean, how impressive do you look as an artist? Yes. That you just say, well, look at this. Here's this archive and lovely collection in the book. And the gallery is welcome to mm. kind of flick through it. And then those galleries that do show my work, I make sure they have a few copies of those uh, books as well. If they feel it's appropriate to hand over to a potential customer, I give them the right to do that. And then some galleries do sell them 
income as well. So it becomes another income stream. So it, it really kind of does help uh, elevate. In regards to how you do it, there are different ways. And I've done two ways. I've done one where I've, I've uh, self-published through a self-publishing website. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a template format where you choose the size of the mm-hmm. book, how many pages, and you do a lot of drag mm-hmm. and clicking and putting it all in and formatting. If you go with those self-publishing websites, the quality is usually to a high standard because they only deal with high quality and printing. Mm-hmm. Also, if you are looking to sell kind of to a wider audience, quite often they have a print-on-demand service. So someone can buy for your website. The publishing site will print it especially for them and ship it to them. Very good if you don't have particular space. Um, some obviously self-publishing uh, sites also have the ability to buy through Amazon and other uh, online retailers. That can be fantastic. However, you've got to be aware of costs. Sometimes the more that the self-publisher does, the less funds that you're going to get back. So if you're looking at it as a money-making exercise, be aware of that. The other side I have also done a self-published, uh, self-published book is on my own desktop using Microsoft or other applications mm-hmm. that you kind of build it yourself. It has to be, it's a little bit more clunky. You have to be very kind of aware of what you're doing, mm-hmm. but there's loads of great self-help ideas and manuals online that kind of tells you how to work that to build your own book. And then you have to seek out a printer that is of exceptionally good quality that sort of does your your images uh, to high standard. I always got a test book first to make sure that it looked right and the scale was right because it's tempting to order a hundred or a thousand copies. But if you get a thousand copies and they're printed badly or the colour's not set, you're stuck with that and there's nothing you can do. No, you absolutely need a copy to check and and for heaven's sake, get other people to proofread and check it as well. Yeah, good idea. And last thing that I would say, get the photography right. If you are not superb at photographing your own work, make sure you use a professional because rubbish photographs is going to be the death of any book Absolutely. Like the talented Mr. B is nodding furiously in the corner. He, <laughs> he, he couldn't agree is. more. <laughs> he certainly is. So, Peter, I think that answers our questions for this week. So the last thing is, what's our takeaway? Well, our takeaway, as always with these, is we need more questions from you. So if you'd like to ask us a question on any arty-related matter, then do drop us a question by visiting our website, which is askanartistpodcast.com. So thank you, Peter, and thank you to everybody for listening. So if you want to catch up with our show notes, you can find them at the same place as you can submit your question at askanartistpodcast.com or you can contact us through social media. And if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe. And if you can go that extra mile, help us out by leaving a five-star review. 